Imagine. Has, has it ever happened to you? Have you ever gone from darkness, spiritual darkness, where God really found you, into spiritual light? We know that's the way it ought to be, but has it ever gone in reverse for you? We know the way the healthy Christian life ought to look. We know it ought to go from kind of exploring and wondering what this is all about to being a new beginner in Christ, then getting close and ever so closer until we're fully a Christ-centered person. That's the way it ought to look. But has it ever gone in reverse for you? Do you realize that you can actually lose ground spiritually and kind of go from light to to more darkness. Oh, it doesn't happen in a split second. But we can go from walking in the bright light of Christ's love to crawling in the darkness. And ever so gradually, you begin to slip away from the church, from your time with the Lord, from the joyful discipline of being in God's word, from precious fellowship in your small group. And before you know it, the light is gone and you're sitting in darkness. I mean, just a moment ago, you were engulfed in light. It was all around you. And perhaps you wish now you had bottled some of it up so you could maybe have a stash and use it when you needed it. But you didn't. And by the way, you you can't really anyway. That's just not the way It works. But the truth is, you've gone from light to darkness. There was a time when the nation of Israel felt that way. We heard last week about how God called Samuel in a very dark time in the nation's history. And the people were kind of walking in darkness. And Samuel's life was not going to be easy. He had to bring a message of bad news to to Eli, the priest, his mentor. But in the next few chapters of 1 Samuel, it tells the sad saga of how this Ark of the Covenant was stolen by enemies. And it was sort of passed around from one village, one town to another. And everywhere the Ark of the Covenant went, it, it brought calamity to the enemies of God. But without this Ark, the Israelites felt demoralized. They felt abandoned, aimless, demoralized, without a sense of true north. They felt like God was no longer in their midst. Now, for those of you who may not know what the Ark of the Covenant is about, perhaps if you've seen the old movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is the piece of furniture. This is the holy relic, if you will, that Indiana Jones was desperately searching for. And here's why it was significant. It was the most holy object of worship, if you will, in the whole life of the Israelites. It was kept in the Holy of Holies, this little box overlaid with gold. 
inside were the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on them and other sacred items. Only the high priest could enter that place and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it represented God's glory, his very presence. This is where God dwelled. And so when that was stolen, oh, what a dark time for Israel. But the lights, the lights, folks, were about to come back on. After 20 years of oppression by the Philistines, finally, this ark has been recovered. And here's what the young leader Samuel now begins to do. Because He's good, he's a godly, he's a visionary leader, and he does what good and godly leaders always want to do. They always want to help people get closer to God and be all God designed them to be. And so Samuel begins to try to stir awakening. He begins to try to stir up a renewal among the people. If you have your Bible I invite you to find this section in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And this is going to be far more than a history lesson for us. In fact, what we're looking at today is a typical paradigm for any renewal, any revival, any awakening that God brings among his people. And if you yourself are looking for a spiritual renewal... Today's message is going to be so relevant to you as we learn some of the steps in that process. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. If you're taking notes today, or perhaps jotting some ideas down, and, and of course all the really sharp people are, uh, you might want to jot this word down, recognition. Because revival begins right there with a recognition of apathy and spiritual coldness toward God. Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase says, throughout Israel, there was a widespread, fearful movement toward God. Now, where was Samuel getting this recognition that something needed to happen? This isn't the way God wants it. We're here, but we need to go there. We cannot stay here any longer. Where did he get that? Well, back in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, verse 20 reads like this, And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. So in other words, people are beginning to see, wow, this guy, God's hand is really on him. God's grace is working through him. But notice the next verse. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Please note that phrase, he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Do you want to be all God designed you to be? Do you want a first-class Christian experience? 
Do you want to really walk close with God and have continual renewal? Here's the most important thing you can do. The most catalytic activity in which you can engage day after day is to simply crack open your Bible or go there on your portable device, however you read scripture these days, and look into God's word and say, Lord, would you please speak to me and make your word come alive. Show me how relevant it is to me. Speak to me. Reveal yourself to me through your word. God did it for Samuel. God can do it for us today. That's the most catalytic activity in which you can engage. Oh, I'm not just saying that as an opinion. The Reveal survey in which we engaged a number of years ago uh, revealed that that is the most catalytic activity. But we didn't need that to show us, did we? 2,000 years of church history have shown that. The Bible itself reveals the power of just looking into God's word and saying, God, would you please speak to me? Now, let me ask you a personal question. As we're talking today about seeking spiritual renewal, do you recognize where you are spiritually? Do you know where you are on the spectrum of growth? How spiritually alive are you? One of the most important ways you can get your finger on the pulse of that is to look into the mirror of God's word. That's what James calls it. In James 1, it says God's word, his law is like a mirror. We look in it and it shows us recognition. It shows us how we really are. And when you do that, the last thing you want to do is just shrug it off and go about your way and stay the same. No. When God shows us where we are, we need to take the appropriate steps. We need to realize, wow, I've drifted from God here. So I encourage you as followers of Christ to regularly Look into the mirror of God's word and examine your soul. Now, people do that in many ways. Some people regularly kind of look at the Ten Commandments and go, how am I doing with these? I, I don't particularly like that way because that's just too brutal. It's too discouraging. Because if you really understand what those commandments mean, you realize you can't really keep them. And so I guess... At the very least, it would cause you to call on God's grace every day, wouldn't it? What I like better is what many Christians practice, to look at Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, those nine attributes, and to kind of walk through them as a way of spiritual diagnosis. Where am I in relation to God? How close am I? How well Am I walking with God? Love. Am I really loving God and loving people more than I did a year ago? Joy. Am I kind of bubbling up inside? Is the, the, the life of God kind of flowing out of me and splashing out to others who desperately need it? Peace. Does the peace of God that transcends all understanding, is it really guarding over my heart and mind on a regular basis? patience, and you go right on through the list, right on to self-control and say, God, as I'm walking with you, am I, because of your grace in my life, am I growing up in you and becoming more 
self-control. That's a wonderful way to do some self-examination of your soul. But you know the ones that, one of the ones that I like is to walk through the so-called seven deadly sins. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition where you heard a lot about these. Now, all of these sins, these wrong attitudes and so on, are mentioned in Scripture. But in the Middle Ages, some church leaders put together this list that has been commonly called the seven deadly sins. You've heard them, haven't you? Anger, gluttony, greed, sloth, lust, envy, and pride. Those are the seven deadly sins. And I've known many people who just kind of, to get a spiritual sense of where they are, kind of walk through those and see, how am I doing battling these in my life? I wish I knew who first came up with this, but I think it's clever. Uh, How many of you have watched the old TV show that was so popular for many years, Gilligan's Island? Can I see your hand, please? Raise it up high. Wow, okay. So you'll identify with this. Somebody got the brilliant idea of associating the seven deadly sins with the key characters in Gilligan's Island. I think this is wonderful. And so as you check yourself, as you examine your own soul, you can kind of easily remember these seven sins and see how you're doing. Anger, the skipper. Remember him? He was always angry with Gilligan, hitting him with his cap, so frustrated. Gluttony, Gilligan. Although he was skinny as a rail, he was always eating large quantities of food. He could eat anything he could get his hands on. Greed, Mr. Howell, the millionaire. Although there was nothing to buy on the island, he was always flashing his money around. Sloth, Mrs. Howell. She never did anything on the island. You can watch every single episode of Gilligan's Island and you'll never see her lift a finger to help with anything. Sloth or laziness. Lust, Ginger. Remember Ginger? Although she was just going on a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour, remember that? She somehow had packed 15 seductive evening gowns for this three-hour tour and boatloads of makeup. Envy, Marianne, the girl who wasn't a movie star and who wanted to be so much more. And finally, Pride, the professor, When all these answers of how to send Morse code messages through a coconut, but somehow never got around to fixing the hole in the boat. Now, that's a clever way of remembering those characters and associating them with these seven classic areas of sin. And when you look at those attitudes and actions that those sins are identifying You can ask yourself, have I been slipping in those areas? So what I'm saying in this first point, and we're spending a little more time here than we will the others, is you are responsible for your own spiritual growth. Now let me say that again. That is super important. You're about as close to God today as you really want to be. And nobody can keep you from growing in your spiritual life. Do you hear that? Your spouse may not be cooperative. That can't keep you from growing. In fact, that'll probably enhance your growth if you have a spouse who's a little obnoxious about this. You say, well, I'm not getting much in my small group. 
that's no excuse. You say, well, sometimes I'm not inspired by the church service. I grew up totally uninspired by my church services, but I still grew. Millions around the world do. It doesn't hinge on an exciting church service on the weekend. We are responsible for our own growth. And here's the good news, folks. You're not in this by yourself. This is Pentecost weekend when the church has historically celebrated Pentecost, the pouring out of God's spirit on the church, first in Jerusalem and then to all kinds of other places and groups of people. And the good news is the spirit is now in true believers, changing us from the inside out. So you're not in this on your own. Christian growth is not a self-help thing. Oh, there's nothing wrong with reading some self-help books. I read a lot of them. I need all the help I can get. But spiritual growth is not just helping yourself. It's God changing us from the inside out. And that's the good news. But it all begins with a recognition. Do you recognize that where you are is not far enough with God? It's not adequate. It's not as far as he designed you to go. He wants you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it begins with recognition. Second step that needs to follow this realization of where we are is repentance. Now, you know the Greek word metanoia means literally a change of mind. But it's more than just changing your mind. It's a mindset change that results in a change of attitude and action. Let's read on in the text, verse 3. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and asterisks and served the Lord only. Now what in the world is going on here? Samuel, the young leader, is trying to again stir the people to get closer to God. He's trying to foment an awakening. He's trying to be a catalyst in this decadent culture. And God has called us as his followers to be that way. In Acts chapter 26, Paul speaks of proving your repentance by your deeds. And here in the Old Testament, Samuel essentially says the same thing. He says, look, if you're serious about this, if you're really repenting, put away the false gods in your life. Now, now, what is this Ashtoreth thing? What, What is that all about? Well, the Ashtoreths were these false deities like Astarte, They were associated with Baal worship. There was usually a a pole or a column it was represented by. It was kind of portable. It was a convenient portable God that you could literally kind of take around with you wherever you went. And it was especially popular because worship of Baal was often accompanied by ritual prostitution as a sacrifice to this false God. Samuel says, look, You've allowed these false idols to creep into your lives and they've separated you from God. It's time to recognize where you are. It's time to repent. 
Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Pastor, I can't think of the last time I fell down and worshiped an Astoroth pole, an Asherah pole, or participated in Baal worship. Well, you're right. But here's the deal. We have our own false gods, don't we? We have our own distractions and barriers that keep us from having a close, healthy, flourishing relationship with God. And since our spiritual growth is really on us, not on the pastor, not on the leaders, not not on your spouse or anybody else, since it's really our responsibility, let me ask you, have you ever seriously asked yourself, do I have any idols in my life? Is there anything right now that's sort of a deadly distraction or barrier that's frustrating my progress? Folks, I ask you this because our spiritual growth is one of those big doors that swings on the little hinges of our daily activities. And when you and I are engaged in things that are not helping promote our progress, listen, we've got some idle junk going on in our lives. God wants us to make a different decision. Portia Nelson wrote a piece entitled An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit now. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. Folks, it's one thing to recognize that we need to move. It's another thing to truly repent and walk down a different street. True repentance means going down a different street, changing some behaviors in our lives. Recognition, repentance, but the third stage in a revival is that there is a time of recommitment. What we see as we read on here in chapter 7 is that Samuel calls the people not only to put some things away, but to refocus He calls them to recommit themselves to what God intended in the first place. Look at verse three again. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and catch this part and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of of the Philistines. You say, Pastor, what what might that recommitment look like? Well, it might be real emotional or it might be fairly unemotional. That all kind of hinges on your personality. Emotion is not the issue. The issue is, are you being intentional? 
A commitment means intentionality. A commitment means that I don't choose this, but I choose that. And so what you find yourself maybe saying after a few weeks is, wow, it's been four weeks. Four weeks since I missed an AA meeting. Man, God is helping me. You may say, wow, it's been six days since I said anything hateful or critical to my spouse. Woo, God's changing me from the inside out. You may say as a student, I haven't cheated on a single test all semester. If your challenge is the second of the deadly sins, gluttony, you may say, look, I haven't overeaten or gorged myself on food in a month. I've encouraged someone every day this week. I've practiced the joyful disciplines in my life virtually every day in the past month. I've been serving regularly through one of our Grace in Action partners. And wow, I'm just falling in love with God and with people all over again. God is changing me. Is that happening to you? Is God stirring that up in you? Now, friends, one of the things that I see when God begins to move us and challenge us is many people kind of get stuck in the past and the hurts and habits and hangups of the past begin to stop us and stall us and stagnate our, our progress. Don't live in the regrets and remorse of the past. You let God move you on to a bright new future. As we read on in verse 4, it's such a short verse, but it's very powerful. It says, so the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day, they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. God was doing a profound and deep work in the people here, and it led to a wonderful recommitment. Well, there's one final stage I want to mention in this progression And it's kind of the classic progression that God brings about, whether you're talking about a whole community, a church, an individual. And the last stage of revival is there will be some resistance. Evil opposition will come after you. When you do the right thing, trust me, you will have opposition. Let's read verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Even at a time of spiritual revival, Christians can become fearful of what might happen. There will be resistance. Satan is not going to roll over and play dead just because you decided to recommit to God and refocus. According to Jesus, you have an enemy. And Jesus said that enemy wants to kill and steal and destroy. And I will assure you, Jesus knew what he was talking about. 
He has set his sights on destroying your marriage. He schemes at making your workplace miserable. He dreams of getting you to play at church and play at being a Christian rather than having an authentic relationship with the Lord. He wants you more than anything else to cave into his intimidation. Don't you dare do it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. One pompous Christian was leaving church one day and he kind of uh, said to the pastor on his way out, Pastor, you talk about the devil and this enemy that's always out to get us. He said, I, I don't experience that. I don't really know what you're talking about. You talk about how he wants to tempt us and take us down and battles for our very soul. Boy, I just, it's almost as though Satan doesn't exist for me. And the wise pastor quipped, two travelers going on the same road in the same direction seldom bump into each other. And I would simply say to you today, if you're never bumping into the devil, you're never having any resistance or spiritual warfare going on. You don't seem to be having any conflict with the enemy. Maybe you need to consider changing directions or walking down a different street. The Christian who's serious about walking in the fullness of the Spirit and living a continual life of renewal like Samuel was as a follower of God just know you will face adversity. So as we wrap up today, I wanna give you a personal illustration of this that comes out of my own life from years ago that I think kind of sums up everything we've talked about today because I'm convinced revival can happen again. When I was a college student, just a sophomore, going to Carson Newman College in East Tennessee, I had two friends. Their names were Russell Wright. Russell lived in Queens, Jamaica, Queens. His dad was a pastor there. While I was in college, I came up and preached at that church. Russell was a good friend. And the other friend was Judge Pippin. Yes, Judge was his real name. Judge was a great guy, a wonderful leader, a natural leader. And Judge Pippin and Russell Wright and I had a conversation, many conversations about how we just didn't feel the spiritual life on campus was what God wanted. We didn't feel we were anything special. We were just desperate. We were desperate for God. And so we made a radical decision as sophomores. We were gonna get up and start praying together for an hour and a half every morning of the week starting at six o'clock. I still can't believe we did this. But you had to get up about five o'clock because you had classes that followed shortly after this prayer meeting. And so we got up and we met in the lobby of alumni dorm right out in the open. We got down on our knees and we prayed for an hour and a half starting at six o'clock. We really weren't trying to be showy. We just didn't have a good place to go. And we thought, well, this is as good as any. And we certainly don't want to be ashamed of what we're doing. So we prayed. And soon people began to ask us, what in the world are you guys doing? And they wanted to join us. Some other believers wanted to join us. And so we did, and it grew to a dozen people. And then we had to leave the lobby, and we found an old room way off in the corner of the Student Activity Center, and it was tiny and cramped, but we got in there, the dozen of us, and then it kept growing. 
And we kept meeting at six o'clock and we would sing some songs together and worship God and sometimes spontaneously break out into song. And we were seeking God for him to renew us and awaken us to all he wanted for us and to change our campus because not much was going on. The recognition of that is what got us started. But we quickly realized if this is going to happen, we need to repent of our own sins. And so we went from recognition to a time of repentance. And many times we were in tears as we just talked about what subpar Christian lives we were really leading. But we kept meeting together and people kept coming. And then somebody got saved out of this prayer time. Someone who didn't know Christ yet. And so we were excited about that. And in the first, by, within four weeks of meeting together like that, there were 70 people cramming into this little room in the Student Activity Center at six o'clock in the morning, singing together, praying together. The place was literally so packed. We were like sardines. Many people had to stand. There was no place to sit. Within four weeks, we heard of four people coming to faith in Christ. One popular player on the football team was one of them. He came and shared his testimony. More renewal. Soon there were 100 people meeting together. 120, 150 people meeting together. We had to leave this little room. And the school allowed us to use a room in the cafeteria that was vacant at this particular time of the morning. And before we were finished, there were roughly 300 people And we went on for three months seeking God together every morning at six o'clock. And we recommitted ourselves, folks, to God's purposes in our lives and on our campus. You say, well, what about the resistance part? My own roommate that I'd gone to church with, to high school with, gone away to college, we roomed together for two years. He called me a fool. He was kind of a lukewarm Christian at the time, not really serious about his walk with God. Some people started making jokes about the holy rollers who met at six o'clock in the morning. What stupid creatures would do that? And we got a lot of resistance. But some professors actually came and joined us. And here's the bottom line. Here's what came out of that. You say, what, what, what was the result? Here's what I would say. Not only were re- we renewed, but I would say that God raised the spiritual level of pretty much the entire campus. And it was all a work of God. We didn't do that. We were just desperate seekers. And folks, I want you to know, the secret to the kingdom is seekers, as David Bryant has said, Because the seekers become receivers. And when they receive, it is never for themselves alone, but so that many others may also be blessed. And I'll close with this. There was an old evangelist named Gypsy Smith, an Irish evangelist, who saw many God-sent revivals in his day. And when asked how to have a revival, this was Gypsy Smith's answer. He said, if I were you and I really wanted a revival, I'd get down on my knees, I'd take a piece of chalk, and I'd draw a circle around me on the floor. And then I'd pray, God, send revival in this circle. And I would urge you to do what Gypsy Smith said. 
Does your small group need it? Does your family need an awakening? Does our church need some new life from God? Oh, yes, yes, yes to all of those. I would challenge you to say, Lord, send a revival and begin it, begin it with me. Father, thank you for this ancient example of an amazing renewal that you brought. Thank you that revival is from you. It's not something we can conjure up by jumping through hoops. But thank you that you've shown us a pattern that we can learn from. And Lord, help us to continually look to you and ask you to pour out new grace, new blessings for an hour like this. Father, we're postured and ready. And I pray, oh God, that you would bring the kind of renewal that we seek. Thank you for the example of Samuel, a catalytic leader who attempted to stir up a spiritual awakening among the people. Let us be your catalyst today, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.